Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of The Neuromantics, which is a more or less monthly uh, podcast and show about communication at the intersection of literature and neuroscience. Uh, I'm Will Eaves. I'm a novelist and poet, at least some of the time. And um, Sophie, uh, my compatriot in arms, is a neuroscientist. And this time round, we're going to be looking at laughter, or even listening to laughter some mm. of the time. And Sophie's going to introduce the paper, which is called Laughter's Influence on the Intimacy of Self-Disclosure. And later on, we'll be looking at a short story by the wonderful American writer, Shirley Jackson. Sophie, over to you. So this paper is from Robin Dunbar's lab and the first author is someone called Alan Gray who I have tried and failed to recruit to my lab several times so this is <laughs> full disclosure um, and I thought this is a really interesting paper so what they are trying to do is to look at something more than the, the kind of traditional perspective on laughter which you know culturally we think of laughter as being something to do with um, you know comedy and humour scientifically we also are very interested in the the profound social implications and use of laughter. But there's something really interesting about this paper, which is, is kind of getting to the intimacy of laughter and the meaning of laughter when you share it and how that can, what, what other things that can lead to. So in this yeah. paper, what they were interested in was if you have laughed with someone, will they then tell you more about themselves? And that's kind of what they found, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, I suppose in my very non-scientific way the term they have for this revelation of self you know telling people mm. personal things is uh, self-disclosure intimacies and I suppose I just thought a bit slightly more in terms of you know when you laugh with someone just a veil is torn away mm. and you end up being slightly more revealing about yourself they call it a self-disclosure intimacy I suppose I'd just be tempted to call it a kind of truth-telling really yeah yeah uh, and what that makes me very conscious of is a possible flaw in this experiment which i hope you'll tell us a bit more about which is that you know it's an obvious thing to say is and it's one of the testing things about relationships how do you know whether this um supposed revelation is actually a revelation or not or whether it's being done to please you i suppose yes. in a sense the question the, the distinction between the two is not necessarily that important because the authors of this paper saying the thing you're really looking at is how laughter builds social bonds what they call the sort of social lubricant hypothesis of laughter and that this is partly what they're sort of testing so whether or not you're really telling the truth perhaps doesn't matter so much to these authors as it does in a way to me i don't know yes. if that makes sense but i think it makes absolute sense it's one of the things that makes laughter even more complicated than it already is as a behavior because it can be it can be something which is an unwitting tell you know people tend not yeah. to realize how much they laugh and they often don't realize how much they laugh differently around different people in fact we attribute our laughter to people we'll say oh you know i really really fancy so and so he's hilarious and what you mean is I really fancy so-and-so and I laugh all the time <laughs> love around him in yeah. the hope that he notices how very, very interested I am. Um, and that, and that, that is our experience. We associate it with people, but it's our, our own behaviour, our own emotional reaction we're describing. So it can be incredibly truthful. And it can also be people will use laughter communicatively. So Robert, um, a guy in the US, Robert Provine, who did some lovely work on laughter. He, he just used to hide in cafes watching people laughing. And he noticed that people... <laughs> At any one time, the person who laughs most in a conversation is the person who's talking. You know, so it's people are using it to kind of show, get people to show they agree, you know, being at, used actively. And then it can be used in a, you know, in a way, sort of an aspirational way or that can bleed into a manipulative way. And often the manipulative way is still largely positive. People will use laughter to try and make a situation better. And if everyone else joins in, it tends to work. That's what we mean by breaking yeah, it. It doesn't I, have to. I think that's, I mean, that's all very persuasive. It, what really you're saying there is that laughter is very often, in one way or another, it's quite transactional. 
you know, I think the, so. Yes, it's never just want, a signal. Yeah, exactly. You're trading bits of information because you you know you want something or you want someone to like you. Yeah. But what's slightly contradictory then about and I sort of agree with that. What's a little problematic about this study then? It seems to me is that the authors go quite are quite keen to underlie the fact that the sort of laughter they're testing doesn't have to be caused by one particular thing. They're not terribly interested in the context of it. They are claiming that just the sort of root psychology phenomenology of laughter is enough for people to ramp up the self-disclosure and to sort of say more about themselves. And I wondered how you could really make that kind of statement without getting interested in the causes of laughter, because I think that it it just doesn't seem quite plausible to me that you can have this sort of mean level, base level of neutrality attached to laughter, that whatever the cause, it has some sort of physiological um, result. That seemed to be quite a leap to say that. I think um, what you've identified here is that it is a great deal easier to talk about laughter as a behaviour, to look at how laughter is used, to, I mean, it's already complex, but, you know, it's a hall of mirrors, and to sort of general identify very general factors like it's primarily a social behaviour. It's something mm. that happens when you're with other people in person or virtually, and it happens much less often on your own. And that is easier to describe and define than to say, what was it that made you laugh? Yeah. What was the thing? And sometimes, actually, you're just looking for, I think a lot of that laughter still is just because you want to, is, is why you're laughing, because, because you like that person. I can re- Even when I was very, very young, I remember noticing that my father behaved completely differently around people who, he seemed to know a lot of people, but he had a handful of really close friends. And as soon as he was with his close friends, I would think, they weren't all female, but they were mostly female. He'd become almost kitten-like and just yeah. rolling around laughing in a way I never saw him like that with anybody else. He'd laugh a lot, but it was much more, you know, hell fellow, well met kind of, let's have a nice smooth conversation. We'll all like each other at the end of it. It wasn't this completely playful behaviour. And I think, so sometimes it's, you know, he, he saw his friends, he wanted to laugh. You don't need a thing beyond that. In fact, a lot of sort of social behaviour is just creating reasons to laugh. It doesn't really matter whether or not you find, you know, the, the nature yes. of the thing. Now, that is, of course, completely true, but also true, I suspect, is that we do also find ourselves laughing at things that are funny. And there you, you have to take on the chin to some extent what it is, the thing that has, you know, has triggered uh, you to laugh. So I, <laughs> I will come to this later, but I watched something yesterday that you suggested, and I was watching it on my own, and all the things that shouldn't have been true... Um, <laughs> <laughs> were true in my life. I was laughing absolutely <laughs> helplessly. And I <laughs> was this by any chance ripping yarns? It was ripping yarns. <laughs> <laughs> ripping yarns for listeners who may be of a certain sort of tender age was a late seventies um, series of comic films, half-hour films, made by the former Pythons Terry Jones and Michael Palin, and they were basically spoof versions of boys' own adventure stories. And they are cripplingly funny. <laughs> um, but they're also done at quite a high spec. And, yes. and there isn't, I can't remember whether there's a laughter track on them, but there is no, something. I think there is. I think, I think there is, because they yeah. would, even though it's filmed. I, do you know what I didn't notice? And actually, that's a, that's a sign that I wasn't, you know, if there's a laughter track and I'm not enjoying something, I'll go, oh, this laughter track's terrible. You know what I mean? So it's a... I think, the, actually, there's something that, that comes up here that's, that's interesting, because you would have seen that on YouTube, on a bit of social media. And in fact, this study comes round to the peculiar problem posed by social media at the very end. And it's, and it's very interesting for this problem we're, we're looking at here of whether you laugh on your own or whether you laugh with other people and what sort of context and size that social grouping is and what effect it has on the laughter. Because Social media is a sort of contradiction in terms, isn't it? It's something we do on our own, usually mm. in our room with the screen, but we are linked to all these other people out there. And so it, it slightly complicates 
and unsettles the criteria on which this study is based, which is that you have just a small group of people, four people in a room responding to various stimuli and laughing or not laughing. Mm. And because it's a small group, they've not met, met each other before, they are said not to be interacting with each other. Well, you then begin to think about what actual what social interaction really is and where yeah. it starts and whether it is with other people or whether it's with other people but not paying any attention to them uh, and whether it's inadvertent or whether it's with a large group of people. And what I get from that and from this, you know, your story of laughing at, on your own at Michael Palin and Terry Jones is that individual laughter is also social. I think that's true. And I think actually that's probably also true, even of our, the nature of the comedic material we're interacting with, we're engaging with. So even if something is, you know, it's not, a, it's not happening in a conversation, it's something you're watching on your own on television or you're reading it in a book, but the intention is to be funny, the intention is to amuse you. I think even then there's quite good evidence that that has a huge social component. So people, yeah. I mean, really stupid example, people will fight a comedian they do not like. People will be very unlikely to laugh at their jokes. I can think of comedians I've already decided I don't like them, <laughs> which is my decision, not theirs. <laughs> and, and they don't make me laugh, you know. Um, and then there was another, there was a really sweet little study where they told people terrible jokes. And they told them that they'd been, who told this joke? So it was told, oh, you know, that Sarah Millican told this joke or... Jamie Oliver told the joke, somebody famous, but he's not a comedian. And people would rate the jokes as funnier if they thought they were told by a professional comedian. Yeah. So there's something, there's a huge kind of social role. Like I, I am here and my role is to do this. I was thinking about this with Ripping Yarns because I, I have, of course, seen that before. I've, I was very, very fond of Ripping Yarns when I was a, in my early teens, or no, late, not, you know, peripubescent period. But I think even our, our sort of appraisal of the, the content of comedy, which is effectively, it's an aesthetic appraisal. It's not, there's a lot of scientific approach to comedy that sort of says, you know, that it's quite kind of mathematical. You can, you, you can kind of model the amount of different sorts of information that has to be there. And the problem with all of those models is they only work retrospectively. You give somebody a joke and they'll tell you why it's funny. And yes. what they can't do is use those models to make something that's funny because, of course, that never works. I, I think it is, even, even comedy, our psychological or neuroscientific response to it is one of kind of appraising the social and the intentional role of the person who's done the thing. And it's as much that as it is the thing that's actually happened. What is the, what is the thing, that, you know, the content of this? I was once in a, you know, there's lifts at Russell Square Tube Station. They're really deep. And they squeeze you in really, really yeah. hard. And I was in a lift and more and more and more and more and more people got in. It had got to a stage where everyone started to kind of go, oh, you know, like, like, giggling a little bit to try and get past this. Just <laughs> as the doors closed, this one male voice just went, well, I hope no one farts. And then all the laughter stopped. <laughs> and we were left in miserable silence, plunging into the depths of the tube station because... You know, uh, no, we haven't got that kind of relationship, sir. <laughs> we no, were laughing to no. kind of cover over a little bit of awkwardness. We were not asking so, you to so, so, your best so, so material. So something can be funny, but actually if the intent or the appeal to the group is less benign, it mm. stops being funny. Yeah, and in a way, I think that's kind of, that's coming into this business of self-disclosure. What's interesting about the, the comedian at whom we laugh because there's an agreed sort of, there's agreed sort of trade-off. This person is, is there to make us laugh. This is a socially binding thing. We've signed up for it. We want to find it funny. You know, we're in a big theatre together. We're on a night out. Uh, it's all these things are conducive to laughter. And the comedian does his or her material and it's brilliant and we have a nice time. But what's interesting about that is that the comedian is doing a routine. We call it a routine. And what comes over as often anecdotal disclosure, um, quite intimate material very often is is also clearly confected. It's part of a routine. Mm. We've no way of testing how much of this is actual disclosure or not. In fact, we would probably rightly suspect that it's all confected. Mm. None of it's really disclosure. It's all fiction, really. That relate The relationship between that awareness and knowing then that the material that makes us laugh so much probably no longer makes the comedian laugh. In fact, it's pretty much a job for them is terribly important. And it, it makes us look at the whole business of the tragic clown 
in a in a different light. In other words, what happens to the instincts to laughter, the social lubricant aspect of laughter, when it's professionalized? It is very, very interesting because I, I mean, my our PhD student, Ceci, did a study last year where we edited laughter onto the end of really bad jokes told by a professional comedian. And what we found was it makes the jokes funnier. Just hearing any laughter, even though it's, laughter has nothing to do with the joke, it makes the joke seem funnier. And I was yeah. talking to comedians about this, and one of them said, well, yeah, obviously, if I hear the, laugh, if I hear the audience laugh, he said, I become funnier. So actually, there is, it is more kind of, um, they're almost like kind of like conductors of the audience's behavior in this kind of weird interaction than I imagined. I thought that it was much more of a kind of like a broadcast from the stage and the audience are reacting. But actually, the, the, the person on stage is being completely influenced by the audience's reaction. And they will react very differently. Different audiences will have different kind of energy to them or quite often they'll be looking for people who aren't laughing and doing things to make that person laugh. So it's Well, much- exactly. It's, it's, yeah. And that is, that is a social appeal thing, is it? That, that they are becoming funnier yep. because they are getting positive affirmation from the audience. So yeah. therefore they feel as performers happier. Yep. So that's where the studies, um, quite interesting relationship between positive affect, you know, mood and... Yeah predisposition to laugh comes in and the study seems to find that there isn't much of a, a relationship between the two and the laughter has this sort of beneficial effect on its own but I would have said from looking at comedians and from what you've just said that actually positive affect and mood and laughter is, are, are highly linked certainly in that kind of stand-up situation you know an act goes well <coughs> and becomes Sorry. funny and funnier yeah if the performer feels it's going well. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And there's, there was quite an interesting paper a few years ago where they were looking at personality traits of comedy performers and they were comparing them to other sorts of stage performers and to control groups. And what they found was that the, the comedians and the other performers were no more or less neurotic, which yeah. is a personality trait term, just meaning kind of pr- prone to the mental health issues than the, the, the um, control population of students. But where they did come out as different was they were more open-minded, which they shared, with, the, with I suspect, with other creatives because they're often writing their own material. And they had a noticeable lack in the need for social approval. Yeah. And that's... Every comedian I've asked about this has said, yeah, I get it from step when I'm on stage. <laughs> that's where I'm getting my hit. And then I come off and I don't need it anymore. And most of us aren't getting that in our day, so we behave differently. So it's like the... The need for it doesn't go away, but you can sort of find it in different places. Can I ask you, just as a lay reader of this, there's, there's, there's one bit that, of the paper that I found quite complex and difficult. And it was this bit about, uh, well, again, it's about the stimulus to laughter and, and whether laughter is sort of relaxed and unforced or whether it's yeah. um, you know, context-driven. When it's a little section about sort of halfway through on, on manipulation Mm. and positive affect there's this nice idea that so in the study uh, the groups of people who are the participants are shown three different video clips and then they're asked to then they make various responses after they've seen these clips and one of them is one clip is of michael mcintyre uh, his comedy roadshow Another is just positive mood-inducing stuff from, Mm. I think, planet Earth, you know, pictures of lush jungles and lovely animals and so on. The neutral one, I think a golf instruction. (laughs) (laughs) A golf instruction video. I have to say, I might not find that very neutral. That might actually drive me completely mad, but there we are. I like the idea that golf is utterly neutral. <laughs> I think I'm on record as saying golf is not utterly neutral, but that's a you're, you're an established authority, I think, on this topic. <laughs> but, but what was interesting was the idea that, that jungles and animals were, were just sort of positive. Mm. Because again, this, this, the sense of a kind of an evaporated context hangs over all this because I suddenly thought, well, they are sort of positive at a distance. 
if one is in a society that functions where you've got nice things around you and all the appurtenances of civilization seem to be working well, well, at the moment we're recording this, when <laughs> civilization is appears to be breaking down yes. somewhat because there's a pandemic. And I wonder for how long pictures of the wild and animals mm. or things at a distance will go on being positive <laughs> if we find ourselves reduced to a state of nature. I mean, I'm not saying this idly. I think it's an interesting no, it's question. And I think, um, I mean, actually, when I want to make people laugh in the lab, I never use um, comedy material. I use examples of people, normally people broadcasting, who, who start laughing and can't stop because that produces laughter because of its contagiousness and sort of truthiness. Normally, they're really desperately trying to stop laughing. So I think, because exactly as you say, this, there is a tremendous amount of, um, uh, you know, kind of cultural baggage around things that uh, evoke emotions. It's a real problem in the literature. Do you study natural kinds of the behavior or do you study things that we think will elicit it and that's what they've done here they've chosen things they think will elicit it whereas you know you and i would probably laugh at the golf probably be badly frightened by the jungle and i'm so yeah. i'll stay neutral on michael mcintyre but you know and that's actually the only thing truly scientifically that's been determined about um, comedy there is no one thing that for everybody uh, is funny over time and over place and in fact that generally happens with positive emotions it's one of the reasons why people tend not to study positive emotions as much it's very easy to come up with examples of things that will trigger negative emotions. It's easy to come up with things that are disgusting or things that are scary or things that but are you sad. Can't, but you can't find a scientific means exactly. for comedy. Yeah. Exactly. You can't, or a scientific, you know, what would be a thing that would evoke joy in everybody? What would be a thing that evoked calm in everybody? Or well, in, this is, is very interesting. Yeah. And, and I think we may have said, we may possibly have alluded to this in the podcast before, but maybe it's worth repeating. This mm. is something the ancient Greeks knew very well, you know, because you, at the kind of Athenian drama festivals you always had the, the the comic play the satire play on first before the tragedy there'd be two plays you know there'll be more yeah. than two plays there'd be a whole day of them but you always had the comic sketches in advance of the great tragic plays because the idea was that the audience would respond quite differently to aspects of the satire and the comedy uh the people different people would find different things funny uh, and it would split people up and then you had the tragedy where it was much easier for people to sort of get mm. on board with the idea that a particularly bad thing had happened or a socially destructive thing had happened, or, you know, what a hero was or, or what an outcast might be. And so the, 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 the arc of the tragedy was socially annealing yeah. and more sort of, uh, yeah, it, it was a bonding exercise, yeah. whereas the comedy was... Uh, rather more difficult to its effects are more difficult to determine. Yeah, that that I think is true, but it does run counter to the hypothesis hypothesis underlying this paper, which is that laughter and comedy are social bonding mechanisms. I mean, there's a sort of internal contradiction there. Yeah, I agree, and I think the thing that um, I tend to take the two separately. So I treat, when I, when I write papers on laughter, you will not find mention of comedy or humour or any attempt to engage with that because, as I say, you can, you can just approach it as a, as a social and emotional, sorry, a social emotion and look at how it's being used and, how, and what it does in situations and differences between people and blah, 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 brains, everything, blah. And the thing that's interesting about laughter in that context is if you treat it in that way, it's very similar in how humans use it as in the way other animals use it. So in other apes, use laughter very, very similarly to us. Rats even seem to have a lot of similarities in their use of laughter to us. So, and that kind of, I'm going to forget about the exact thing that triggers it and look at it as a behaviour. You can pretty much treat it very, for a lot of the time, not entirely, but many of the factors are just basically kind of looking at, you know, biological property of this thing. As soon as you want to say, what is the thing that we're laughing at? then you become, you hit something that means only human. So mm. I have never seen any example anywhere of an animal laughing that was provoked by something that was not physical and immediate, like play. or yeah. And so you, do, you don't get this sort of laughter at a distance thing and laughing at something somebody else has done thing that you find in humans. And as soon as humans appear, so you start making marks on the world, you find things that are supposed to be funny. So it's clearly something we've been doing as soon as we, modern humans appeared. So laughter's older than us. Humour appears 
as soon as you get us. And I think one of the roles, by no means only, but one of the roles of laughter, sorry, of, of humour, is to be a thing to provoke laughter. It's you know, it's a yeah. you know, it's a, a, thing, a representational thing we do to get to this older behaviour. That's a very, very useful distinction between laughter and humour, and, and I completely go along with that. I mean, the, the example that springs to mind is actually an intimate one. So, you know, read listener alert. There's some, there's some intimate self-disclosure coming up. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I remember um, being, there's no polite way of putting it, in bed with my um, former partner, and we, we played, we developed this kind of game, which we found very, very amusing. But I'm now wondering what the sort of, what the purpose of it was in a way. It was because it, it was very, very touching and very, very funny at the time. That was yeah. when we were sort of tired. We would, you know, sort of spooning or at least one person is behind the other. And we would draw on each other's backs, on the other person's back. We would draw a famous picture, a famous <laughs> painting. Uh, just with one finger, and the yep. person <laughs> had to try and guess <laughs> what the painting was. And of course, it's almost impossible to do, except that the more you practice it, and the funnier and more absurd it got, the better we got at it. Yeah. So yeah. it started being impossible because you think, well, it just could be anything. What is that? But then suddenly, I, I felt David. Just this little sort of repeated up to about 10 or 12 little, I imagine to be little humanoid lozenge shaped things. And I thought, well, what picture has 12 people? And I thought, oh, it, it's the Last Supper. <laughs> and it was the Last Supper. <laughs> and it was so extraordinary that you could get this kind of representative yeah. accuracy from something that completely, I mean, it was his intention. And it, he did mean it to be the Last Supper. But at the same time, he was dabbing my spotty back with his finger <laughs> in an intimate situation. How absurd can you get? Oh, it's beautiful. I think the, the, and then, I, you know, I would do, I would sort of then do, on his extremely hairy back, just two squares, and you'd go, oh, Rothko. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, was right. And I love the history of art as a kind of sort of, sort of late at night, exhausted bit of play yeah. in the bed. But in a way, I suppose if I was to subject that to a bit of analysis, you are bonding because it's funny, yes, but you are also testing whether the other person has a developed sensibility that is in tune with yours. And the yeah. developed bit is quite important. It's something to do with likeness. Yeah, and not just species likeness, but this person has a similar repertoire of tastes and, and ability to recognize things. So I can trust this person to recognize similar things. I will not be, I'm safe with them. I'm safe with them. This actually is completely resonant with a very, it's quite a small literature, but a really interesting literature on how laughter and comedy, well, humour is used in high stress professions. So if you look at jobs that are really stressful, like the police or the fire service or medicine or nursing, what you find is there tends to be very strong traditions of workplace humour, which can be quite shocking and horrifically so to people who are not part of that community. And that's quite deliberate. So that it's giving people a reason to laugh. It's helping them deal with the stress because they're laughing at a thing that is, you know, they have to deal with every day. And it is deliberately keeping other people out. It's meant to be shocking to other people. It's me other people aren't meant to get the joke. And it's a more, obviously a more, much more extreme example than yours. But at the heart of it, it's the same thing. Like we can work together as a team because we have to work as a team. We can deal with the stress because we have to deal with the stress. And yes. we can know that we're doing something other people couldn't do because we are doing something a lot of other people would struggle to do. And the way that you make that manifest is by how you joke together. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. You're testing who belongs. It's a tribal thing, but wrapped up in that is how small can the tribe be mm. you know, and still be a sort of unit of belonging. Yeah. Which brings us back to that, you know, the question of, you know, what is a social context? And is it, does, it, does there have to be another person involved or can it be one person on their own? 
I think at this point we might introduce the, the short story because oh, yes, please. Uh, this business of you know testing who's in the group, who isn't, and, and, and keeping others out to a certain extent, which you described in the new case of fire services and people who work in high-stress positions, is that you are there's, there's a sort of sympathetic magic involved, isn't there? That you are giving people little sort of examples or totems of the funny, which may be kind of objectively rather shocking. But to the other people, it has a particular meaning that is cathartic in some way and, mm. and therefore socially bonding. This writer that I've, I've chosen, that, that, we've, that we're about to look at now, Shirley Jackson, was hugely interested in the way objects and ideas can become um, little fetishes of meaning. Uh, so she wrote a whole novel in the 50s called um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is about two sisters, one of whom is a sort of witch, really, and she has a highly developed, um, possibly developmentally frustrated relationship to her surroundings, to dolls, to trinkets, found objects that she developed, that she has a whole kind of mythology for to help her cope with the fact that her family, the rest of her family is dead. And as we discover, <laughs> she killed them. <laughs> Bit of a spoiler alert. But, but it, it seems to me the relevance to this study of Shirley Jackson's sort of MO is that telling people things about yourself is giving them an object, a sort of thought object, which is a kind of sympathetic magic. If I give you this information, you will know something about me and you will treat it with care, I hope, and you will value me more. And in this, the same way, if things are taken from me without my permission, then people have power over me, which I may not be aware of and which they may use malignly. And this story is about that other side of the coin. Mm. So in a kind of benign situation, laughter is the sort of thing that you willingly give somewhere else and you share, and then you have a kind of bonding experience and the intimacy and relationships develop. But in the sort of field of witchcraft and sinister um, actions, things that are taken without your permission, but which you know someone else has, gives that person power over you. And this is what this story is all about. And I don't think it's an accident that it is also extremely funny mm. because it is about um, two people who live in a furnished apartment building in the 40s. One is an elderly lady who lives beneath the protagonist of the drama, who is called Emily Johnson, who lives in an almost identical room above the old lady called Mrs. Allen. And Emily Johnson is in her 30s, early 30s, and she begins to notice that small things have gone missing from her room. Just, you know, a pair of earrings, handkerchiefs, some cigarettes, nothing of any importance. And one day she is coming down from the sunroof and she sees Mrs. Allen coming out of her room, Emily's room, and she realizes who it is who's been taking the the stuff. <laughs> she decides that she has to go and confront Mrs. Allen about this. You know, it's got to stop. Mm. And she goes to Mrs. Allen, and they have this fantastic <laughs> encounter where Emily is absolutely unable. She sort of tells obliquely Mrs. Allen what's going on, but she yeah. cannot abuse her because she's a nice old lady and because she wants to be liked. She doesn't want to imperil the relationship. <laughs> Shit. And not only does it not stop happening, but Mrs. Allen appears to, sh she actually demonstrates no awareness that she is the culprit, that she is taking the things, mm. or that she's done anything wrong. So what do you do then? And I wonder as a psychologist what you made out of all that. I was psychologically extremely real, very, very real. And certainly, um, I don't know, I mean, have you ever actually been in that situation? I once, this is very embarrassing, it was a work situation. I um, I saw someone take something and put it in her bag. So I was like, um, oh, has anyone seen this thing? And she went, oh, well, I'll look around. No, I can't find it. I was like, no, I just saw you. And I couldn't say to her, I saw you put it in your bag. I know that you did it. It was, and I was kind of, you know, I thought if I, if more and more, if I kind of involve more and more people in this search, I'll give her a chance to say, oh, look, it's here. You know, no, absolutely not. Not a, not a 
flicker, not a second of it. And it is a, it's a recognised kind of, um, you know, psychological disturbance. I can't be very, very careful. There was a head of department in the psychology department, quite a famous <laughs> psychology department in the UK, where the head of department would just take people, he invited them around for dinner, he would leave with things from your house in front of you. <laughs> It's absolutely extraordinary, but um, and and, and it's amazing it was, what people. Yes, people will, will go along with it. People don't say, "Well, that's my painting. You're leaving my house with." It's partly because of the, or almost entirely because of the social context then and there in the moment, and then the the psychological issue that means someone gets a pleasure from doing it. I think there's a bit of you know, like a dopamine kick from the the knowledge that you got something and. Uh, and you've not been called on it, even, you know, it, the, you, you can imagine, I don't, let's not think about it too much. I don't think we all need to start shoplifting and everything else, but it's, um, it's, it is, it, I thought it was extremely psychologically accurate, which is of course what all art should be. <laughs> and part of the marvellous thing about it too, is which, which really does chime with the study, is, is that the, the reason for, Mrs. Allen taking these things, which are importantly of sort of nugatory value. They mm. don't really, she's not doing anything terrible. It's just that she's, she's infringing someone else's personal privacy. She's trespassing, mm. you know, and it, there's, the, the sinister nature of it is directly related to its inoffensiveness. It's the fact that it's not really gone far enough to be any kind of plausible material threat. It's just what's frightening about it is the fact that it appears to be completely causeless. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, yeah. there's absolutely no explanation of what causes this behaviour mm. uh, or what purpose it serves. And I think that's very, very important in any literary or artistic exploration of the uncanny. The causelessness is vital because once you attribute too much motivation it becomes just a kind of mechanistic relationship. It's a trade-off, you know, yeah. such and such a thing happened in the past and now such and such a thing is happening now, which yeah. looks out of place but isn't really. Yeah. Uh, whereas the uncanny is all about a sort of meaningless repetition, which we nonetheless recognise to be true and obscurely threatening. So mm. the rooms in which these two women live are almost identical. And when Emily goes into Mrs. Allen's room to try and locate the stolen objects, this is a marvellous moment in the story. She has an awful creeping sense that she has become Mrs. Allen mm. and that the two are absolutely interchangeable. And I think that's a really, really important thing about repetition and fear of the double, which is that if you can be repeated, if your circumstances can be repeated exactly, then that means that your originality and uniqueness come into question and you can be replaced. You know, that's the fear of automation, isn't it? it, it the fear is not really that there are such things as, you know, thinking robots or thinking machines. The fear is that you are not necessary. There's a handful of neurological disorders where people think that either people, other people, or places, or hospitals, or things have been taken away and replaced with something else. There's, there's um, Capgras delusion where people think like they yeah. say you're my wife, but I know that you're not. I know that you're a replica. You know, you, you, it's a recreation. And those, there's only a handful of things that are always true about it. There's always some kind of perceptual disturbance. So when you test it, their face processing has gone a bit funny. But also, they never care about where the original's gone. What they care about is the deception. Like, I know that yes. that's not the watch that you say it is, or I know that you, you tell me this is such and such a hospital, but no, it's not. I know it's a replica of that hospital. And they never care about why. They never care about where the original is. They care about the deception and on solving that. Exactly like you say, it's some horrifying thought 
that someone would have deceived you in this way and recreated this thing. And, and that's, that's the thing that your, your brain cannot get away from. You know, this, is, this is really interesting, sir, because it makes me think of something. I've suddenly sort of clicked the, the relationship between that, the, you know, the, the, the kind of anxiety about and the, and the anger about the uh, deception being the important thing, and it's linked to laughter. Go on. There was a famous French philosopher and writer, excellent writer called late 19th century Henri Bergson. And he wrote a long essay called Le Rire, laughter, or you know, the, the, the joke in a way. The essence of what he was saying is that laughter is a kind of subtle vengeance. We, we laugh when we feel, we often laugh when we feel that liberties have been taken in some way, in some obscure manner, and that it's a corrective for that. In other words, the impulse to laugh in the face of distress or calamity or just the world as it actually is with all its unknown quantities is a corrective. It's a desire to you know, re-establish equilibrium and at a kind of very mysterious subconscious level, a desire to get even with the world. And it's... Perhaps it's more true of, we would think it's more true of satire, obviously, than anything else. But it, it, there's, there's something in that, I think, that we want to make a joke of the terrible and the mm. awkward because those things are obviously out of our control uh, in the same way that our unconscious processes are not obviously within our control. But a laugh... Uh, is a way of bringing them back within the sphere of, you know, observable and controllable behaviour, even if the laughter appears to be inadvertent or the circumstances are inadvertent. So, for example, you know, you laugh at someone falling over in the street. You're laughing. You're not... it's the tendency from an outside perspective is to say that that's that the, the person who laughs at that is being cruel, but actually a slightly more scientific analysis of it might be that they are in a way laughing because it hasn't happened to them. Yes. There's an element of Schadenfreude <laughs> attached to it. Yeah. And that the laughter therefore, it doesn't so much mean that it's inherently funny. It means that the situation is being corrected in some way by the laughter, being brought back into balance. And I think that's not completely unpersuasive. No, I think it's quite congruent with, um, there's a literature about, um, it's all can take place with married couples in America, so it's a very kind of heteronormative study, but it's a longitudinal study looking at couples, and they, they put them in stressful situations. So they give them a conversation topic, which is how do you, you know, tell me something your wife does that irritates you, that kind of thing. It's very stressful. And physiologically, you see people become stressed immediately. Both members of the couple become stressed. And what they find is that couples who use what they call positive affect to deal with the stress show a reduction in stress. So things like laughter and smiling, but it only works if you both do it. So if one person is laughing, the other person isn't laughing, there's no power. So it's, it's like a kind of an agreed thing. We will together decide that this is a ridiculous thing, that um, I snore too much. And we're showing how unserious it is by how we will be able to laugh at it. The interesting things there that the couples who do that, because um, there are other ways of closing down stress. You can use aggression. You can use passive aggression. You, know, you, don't, you can just motor over someone else and say, well, shut up. You can do other things. But the couples who use positive affect are the couples who stay together for longer and are happier. And it's not because laughter is just a sort of magic, you know, it's an index. The laughter is a sign that you can do this. And I suspect that this is what we mean by any kind of close, you know, friendship or family relationship is often the relationships where you can do that. You have that kind of space emotionally to sort of together decide you will make things better by doing this together without having to discuss it. And that is, it is that kind of correction. You, you, you correct it together and you have to do it together because if you don't do it together, it doesn't work. It's very interesting because at, at the end of the short story, there is a sort of, a, a kind of, a, the story is called Trial by Combat. 
Yeah. It's a marvelous <laughs> title. It's it's it, it's a rather kind of ominous and terrible title because it's 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 this inoffensive kind of sort of domestic situation that's being described, but it does have this sort of very sinister undertow. But they do rather like the couples you're describing, Mrs. Allen and Emily come to some sort of understanding at the end, which I, I kind of think is, is howlingly funny. It's been revealed to Emily that she's really completely powerless over yes. Mrs. Allen, and Mrs. Allen has won. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, the, the, there's a sort of agreement to let the status quo carry on. I mm. wonder if I, can I just read the end of the story? Oh, please do. Because it seems to be rather marvellous. So Emily has gone down to Mrs. Allen's room to sort of retrieve her stuff, to see what the situation is, where her stuff is. And she finds it all, and she finds herself wondering about Mrs. Allen's life. And she's in Mrs. Allen's room, and then Mrs. Allen comes in and spots, you know, catches her, not really doing anything. She's not taking anything herself, unlike Mrs. Allen. But she is found in someone else's territory. So, of course, it looks bad. And she makes up the story about having come down to borrow some aspirin. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to read the last few paragraphs. Yes, Mrs. Allen said gently. So Mrs. Allen has just come in. Emily found that she was staring at the picture of Mrs. Allen's husband. Such a thoughtful looking man, she was thinking. They must have had such a pleasant life together. And now she has a room like mine with only two handkerchiefs of her own in the drawer. Yes, Mrs. Allen said again. What does she want me to say, Emily thought. What could she be waiting for with such a ladylike manner? Uh, uh, I came down, Emily said and hesitated. My voice is almost ladylike too, she thought. Uh, I had a terrible headache and I came down to borrow some aspirin, she said quickly. I had this awful headache, and when I found you were out, I thought surely you wouldn't mind if I just borrowed some aspirin. I'm so sorry, Mrs. Allen said, but I'm glad you felt you knew me well enough. I, I never would have dreamed of coming in, Emily said, except for such a bad headache. Of course, Mrs. Allen said. <laughs> Let's not say any more about it. <laughs> she went over to the dresser and opened the drawer. Emily, standing next to her, watched her hand pass over the handkerchiefs and pick up the aspirin. You just take two of these and go to bed for an hour, Mrs. Allen said. Thank you. <laughs> Emily began to move towards the door. You've been very kind. <laughs> Let me know if there's anything more I can do. Thank you, Emily said, then, opening the door. She waited for a minute and then turned toward the stairs to her room. I'll run up later today, Mrs. Allen said, just to see how you feel. <laughs> but it's an absolutely brilliant thing because you can't... Mrs. Allen, the brilliant part of it is that Mrs. Allen now has a reason to go upstairs. Yes. And it's as if in the process of this sort of strange business of barter about what has really gone on, she has discovered the missing piece of the puzzle to sort of legitimate further intrusions into Emily's mm. life, which is a reason to go up there. Yeah. Hitherto, it's been uncanny because there hasn't been a reason. It's just been some sort of psychopathology. Now, there is a reason. And Emily is, you know, the field is wide open. You know, she's, she's colonised Emily's territory. And I think the laughter comes out of recognizing that the game is now up. The power has decisively swung, really, in Mrs. Allen's favor. She has won, but also that Emily has agreed to it. Mm. She's capitulated. And you know, this is something about the kind of contest in the arena between the person who's providing the joke and the person who's laughing. I think it is transactional, but as in all transactions, there are winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And you do stand to gain by being the purveyor of coin material. And it may be that you stand to gain by laughing. But I think there are still winners and losers. There's something also... What I'm struggling towards saying is that I think there's something less benign underneath it all, which is there's, there's an element of the gladiatorial about it, I think. There is an element of combat about it. And I think going back to the, the sort of example of disclosure at the top, I think the, that you can never know when you're talking to someone why they're laughing. You know, they may be laughing yeah. because they're genuinely adoring meeting you. 
they maybe have a completely different agenda and there may be a reason why someone's disclosing something to you. It could be, you know, like bringing you closer into their circle. It changes your world in the network. You're improving your social standing by being close to this person. Or it could be another lie. You don't know. There's no kind of um, baseline for truthiness about behavior. You're working it all out on the fly and in the moment. And one of the things we're hardest at judging is at the moment and on the fly, exactly what's going on. We, we don't notice laughter unless it's not there. And all the evidence is we are literally at chance when it comes to spotting liars. We are yeah. terrible because, because we want to believe people. So, we, we're just, And also, there's, there's, there's a second level to that, which is also the, the, intention to, the intention to deceive may not be obvious to the person doing the deceiving. Yes, yes. You know, they may not yeah. know that they are doing it. Mm. It's clearly a deception. But they may, but the, the level of intention involved is is a little mysterious to them. That's the case with Mrs. Allen. Yeah. But it's also absolutely the case, I think, with comedy, because you know, I think Ricky Gervais once said that you know we are not, the essence of comedy is we are not as we appear to ourselves. David Brent is not the hero he thinks himself to be. Uh, he's a Burke, you know, with a, absolutely no kind of ability to, to really you know behave in any sort of socially sort of meaningful way but also he he isn't he's not in control of that is he deceiving himself or not it's an it's an interesting question we're not as we appear it, it doesn't it doesn't mean there's something intentional going on yes i think um intentions are often easier to sort of see when you're reading them in someone else it's much much harder to know we're not very good really at honestly engaging with our own intentions very frequently maybe this is something for another podcast and another paper and another piece of art but it's um how we i think that, receive not only other people's but ourselves is one of the again fascinating aspects of humans i think that's something that de- definitely to pick up next time apologies to the listeners um who may have had to deal with a little more of us talking over each other than in other episodes that's because of course we're doing this remotely uh so we hope that works out and that you have nevertheless enjoyed uh, this 10th episode of the Neuromantics, which I think we can call the end of season one, Sophie, don't you think? Yes. I think 10 episodes. Yeah, and, and emotionally, no, a socially but not emotionally distant end of season one. Very nicely put. So that's us for this month. I've been Will Eves. I've been Sophie Scott. Bye-bye. <laughs>